0: Yeah, it's been a great morning of worship already. Uh, thank you guys for joining us, whether you're here with us, if you're online. If you are new and I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Rodney. I get the pleasure of serving on staff here at New Life, and, uh, and I am married to Carrie, who you heard from earlier. Uh, so we hope, ladies, if you haven't gotten to do one of the events that the that the women have done, uh, please join them on Saturday. Uh, this morning, I want us to start with, uh, I, I want to ask you to think about a time, the first time that you can remember when you were a kid, that you went to a funeral or to a memorial service of some kind? Maybe you were really young, uh, maybe you were a little bit, little bit older, but what was that first memory that you have? Uh, when I was a kid, when I was about four years old, I went to my very first funeral service. And and I didn't really know what to expect. Um, I'm sure my parents perhaps me in in some kind of a way, but I don't remember what they said. I don't even remember who had died. Uh, I just remember kind of being along for the ride with them. Uh, I I grew up in Pensacola, Florida, and it's just across the line to Alabama where the, the funeral was. And nothing really stands out from the service, at the beginning at least. Uh, It was an old traditional church building, had pews, stained glass windows, and I remember it was a bright sunny day, so the room just kind of lit up. It was just kind of glowing, and the the pastor was speaking about the deceased, and and nothing was really out of the ordinary until at one point, and I can just remember this as vividly as if it happened yesterday. He took the casket, and he tilted it toward us. And he was saying something about the person who was deceased. He, he set it back down, and then a lightning bolt came from the ceiling, went into the casket, some smoke came up, and then he tilted the casket again, and there was nothing in the casket, nobody, just the white silk padding. Now, here's the strange part. <laughs> nobody reacted at all. They just went on with the service and finished it out as if that's just what happens at funerals. Lightning bolts come down, God takes this body up, and that's it, and that's a funeral. And before you call to have me committed, I, I do realize that didn't actually happen, okay? But that is what I remember in my four-year-old brain it, to the point that about a year ago, I had to call my parents to be like, okay, I, I know this is not what happened, but I'm just remembering this very vividly, like, what did happen? And they were able to confirm, yeah, we did go to a funeral at that time. It was in Alabama, and some of the things that you're remembering, but I don't know if, if I dreamed this part. I don't know if this was my creative brain as a four-year-old coming up with this, but but I I just kind of thought that was normal, at least for probably a year or two, and and, and then I realized that probably wasn't normal. Uh, but But for all of us, I mean, whether we're little, 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 or we're older, we still have questions, right? We, it's, it's, there's still some mystery, like, what actually happens? Like, when, when someone dies, what happens then? What happens later on? Maybe more seriously than a, than a childhood memory, maybe this has been an experience for you recently. Think about the last funeral that you've been to, especially if it was somebody who, who you loved and who you were close to, and, and even then, when, when there's, there's this mixture, potentially, of, of hope and, and sadness and, 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 and happiness and grief, there's still these questions that are like, what, what happened to that person? Where are they? Or, or is, is that it? What's, what's going to happen with them? Will I ever see them again? Will they be okay? That bigger picture, when we think about what's going on in our world, so pandemics, wars, conflicts, refugee crises, like, wh- where is all of this going? What, what is really going to happen? And then what about the, the, the whole thing about when Jesus comes back? Like, what, what is going to happen? So if, if you struggle from time to time, it, as I do, and as I think most of us in this room do, with, with fears, with insecurities, uncertainties about death, about where the world is heading, then you're in good company, and there's good news for you, because God's Word has some answers for us on those specific questions today, and there is good news in it. And, and while it doesn't answer every single question that we have, we, we are going to look at some things that are some very comforting words and some very hardcore bedrock truth that we can stake our lives on. So if you would, open your Bible or turn on your app. We're going to go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible with you, the words will be on the screens. If you don't have a Bible at all, please let us know. We'd love to give you a Bible that you could uh, read and study on your own. Uh, outside of this time as well. Well, if you've been with us the past few weeks, uh, you, you know that this letter, 1 Thessalonians, is a, is a letter in the first century written by Paul, who was a missionary church planter, basically, who wrote a significant portion of the, uh, the New Testament. Lots of the letters in our New Testament are written by him. And this is written to followers of Jesus in Thessalonica. You can look that up today. It, it might it, On the map, it might say Thessaloniki, something like that. It's a modern-day city in Greece. So that's the same place. And Chris, our lead pastor, has taught through the first several sections of this book. Two weeks ago, we looked at a section that's focused on sexual purity and sanctification or becoming more like Jesus. Last week, we looked at a very uh, practical—some very practical things about how we love one another as believers in the church, in the body of Christ. Today, we're going to cover just six verses, but these verses are very well known and some of the most hotly debated verses in the Bible. And we'll deal with— some of that confusion, not all of it, but more than anything else, we're going to ask and answer three questions about death and the second coming of Jesus, okay? Number one would be, how should we grieve? As believers, how should we grieve? That's question number one. Question number two is, what should we believe? What should we believe about all these things? Death, second coming, those kinds of things. And then number three, what should we do with end times teaching? So how should we grieve? What should we believe? And then what should we do with this end times teaching? So that's what we'll focus on today. First Thessalonians chapter four, let's get started in verse 13. Uh, last time I preached, I introduced you guys to the, the y'all version of the ESV. Uh, so that simply takes the plural, which in, in English, you can be singular or plural. It just, it just takes away that ambiguity and plugs in y'all whenever it's plural. Okay, so we'll see what is he saying to the church at large versus just to one person. Verse 13, Paul to the Thessalonian believers, he says, but we do not want y'all to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep, that y'all may not grieve as as others do who have no hope. So Paul starts with something that they didn't know. They were uninformed. They had questions. They had doubts. They had fears, just like you and I do at times. And they were specifically concerned about fellow believers who had died. Uh, Chris mentioned last week, some of the Thessalonians believed that Jesus was coming back so soon that they had quit their jobs. They they were just like, this is pointless. I'm just gonna sit at home and just kind of wait for him to come. And come on, you know, come back, Jesus. And, And it was like, time was going on, and he wasn't coming back, and they were starting to get confused. And then, and then more than that, more emotionally, some were thinking, Look, well, what about others who, who we love who have died? And, and what about this whole coming back thing that, that Jesus had, had talked about? So they were unprepared. And, and were their loved ones, what, what was going on with them? Were, were they going to miss out on the second coming? Were they just dead and gone? And, and, and that's it. I mean, if we asked this question in Asheville today, I'm sure we'd get all kinds of responses from the average person. Uh, s- same in Thessalonica, they would have had some wild ideas potentially about, uh, about what happens and what, what's going on in uh, the unseen realm. But in the church, we have to have right ideas based on what God has given us in His Word. That's where we get our ideas from. So Paul wants them to know, he doesn't want them to be ignorant. Of these things, and he wants to, as we'll see, reassure them. He wants to strengthen their hearts in in this assurance about what's what's going to happen. And he doesn't want them, on one hand, to be fearful. On the other hand, he doesn't want them having wild, crazy ideas that would lead them in a a not-so-great direction, okay? Now, the word sleep in verse 13 has thrown some people off. Uh, This is just simply a common metaphor for death. It's used throughout the New Testament. In in Greek at this time, it's it's used as a euphemism. It's just a nicer way to say death. The the other reason that this is used so commonly is if you are in Christ, that it's— Death is more like sleep. It's more like taking a nap than it is this finality that we associate with death. And so, so this, this word you'll see a lot in the New Testament about death, it'll be called sleep because we have that, that hope. Now, at, at death, the, the New Testament teaches us, and Paul in uh, both letters to the Corinthians and, and in other places, we can kind of put together that what, what happens is that our bodies may lay, may lay in a grave— But we know from those letters that those who are in Christ, their spirit goes directly into his presence. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, he says. So our our spirits are temporarily, for, for some amount of time, separated at death from our bodies, waiting for our own resurrection and for our renewed eternal bodies, just like Jesus had when he rose from the dead. So that's our hope, if we're in Christ, that one day we will wake up, so to speak, out of death and our spirits will be forever reunited with glorified bodies, just like Jesus after he rose, that that we won't be these disembodied spirits floating around, and, and that's not what the eternal state will be like, but we'll be with him in these new bodies. Now, a few references. If you want to study this further, uh, we'll put this on the screens. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 would be a key place to go, and there's several other references that you want to jot those down if you want to, to study that question more about what happens when believers die. Now, the Thessalonians, they were wondering this, but they were wondering more specifically what happened to believers who had died around them before Jesus returns, before the second coming. So Paul addresses that. Next, but first he makes clear why he's telling them that. The the end of verse 13, he says, he he talks about not wanting them to be uninformed about those who are asleep. Why? That y'all may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So the little the little word that gives us his purpose or his the the reason why he's informing them uh, of what he's about to say. It's not just to indulge their curiosity. It's it's because he wants them to know we grieve differently. you might have been to a funeral that, that was, was very somber, very sad. You might have been to a funeral that, that just almost felt like a party, right? It was just all this happiness, and it's like, you're just kind of torn, right? I, I think some mixture of that is about right, because there is, for a believer, somebody who's in Christ, there is hope. And it, that's, that funeral is not a, is not a final thing. But there is sadness as well. We, we grieve those, our loss of those people in our lives as we know it now. And, and, and so we, we have sadness. So there, there's, there's a mixture there, but we grieve differently. We grieve with that hope that, that is offered in Christ. And so that's who, who are those who have no hope. That would be non-believers, those who, are, those who are not in Christ. They don't have the hope of that resurrection and eternal life. So then he, he talks about we need to grieve differently, not as, not as the world does. And then he grounds that hope in the bedrock truth of, of not only what will happen, but what has happened. So look at verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So Paul starts with, with grounding his argument and, and their hope in two central key facts of the Christian faith, Jesus' death, and Jesus' resurrection. That's where he grounds this. And then they they know, they were convinced that the Thessalonian believers, that Jesus died and that he rose. And on that solid bedrock of truth, Paul then gives another central truth that those who have died will be raised with Jesus when he returns. During communion or, or the Lord's Supper, which we'll take together later this morning, uh, there are uh, many believers around the world who, who will— there, there's lots of ways that the, the different churches do it. And, and many around the world will, will raise the cup and they will say together, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. And they say that out loud all together as a declaration of their faith and, and their, 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 their firm belief in what he has done and then their hope in him coming back again. And so that's a reflection of of this passage. Uh, There are many other places where it's talked about. Uh, John 14 is one of my favorites. In verse uh, 18, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So he he says he's coming back for us. So the, the, the logic here goes that if God did not abandon Jesus in the grave, he will not abandon us either as his children. Now, Paul goes on, verse 15. For this we declare to y'all by a word from the Lord that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now this phrase a word from the Lord this has tripped up some people over time because you won't find this in the four gospels. This this saying here uh, or this teaching from Jesus it, it's not a quote from Matthew, Mark, Luke or John. But this would just simply be something like in Acts 20, where Paul is saying a a tearful, emotional goodbye to the elders of the church in Ephesus. And it it quotes Jesus as saying, it is better to give than to receive. Well, you're not going to find that anywhere in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. But this is a clearly remembered saying of Jesus, even though it's not recorded in the Gospels. And so Paul is bringing that to mind. So it's a similar idea here. Now, what about our loved ones who died? What what if—what if— we're still here when Jesus comes back. Well, our, our loved ones, they will get to go first, is what is basically what he says when, to meet him when Jesus returns. Now, what, what exactly will happen? This is what it'll look like. Verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. These are the exact words we just sang in the song that, that Braylon led us in. Uh, that, that's, it, this, it comes from this verse right here. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them, with the dead in Christ, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So strap in, we're gonna talk a little bit about the second coming of Jesus, okay? If, if just for a few minutes, we're gonna do just as Paul does here. We're, we're not gonna dive into all of the ins and outs, but we're gonna hit a few of the key points. Uh, a, a, a full end time study, that's way beyond the scope of this passage, it's way beyond the scope of the time that we have together. Uh, but we do have an email address for you we'll put up on the screen so you can email all your questions to, um, for, for end times, okay? Now, if you want to dive into these things more, seriously, uh, Matthew 24 would be a great parallel passage to study. Jesus lays out a lot of these things in a little bit more detail. Uh, and of course, you could do a full study of Revelation, make all the connections to the Old Testament, and, and we'd be happy to, to recommend some resources uh, for you if you want to dive into that study yourself. There's a lot of great stuff out there. There's a lot of... Not so great stuff. There are some crazy uncles in the body of Christ and some of those get published and, and, and there's books that, that confuse people. And so we'd love to, to recommend some things if you uh, would like to, to study that further. Now, Paul doesn't give us a lot in, in terms of details here, but there there is uh, a lot in the New Testament about the reality of the second coming. And he even mentions it. Every chapter in 1 Thessalonians makes at least one mention of the second coming. So it's a, it's a big emphasis for... Uh, here in and through, throughout the new testament now what paul says clearly here in, the, in in verse 16 is that the lord himself will descend so jesus in bodily form he is coming down from heaven or from the heavens and himself it's not going to be an angel it's not going to be a spirit or something like that it's going to be him himself and his appearing will be accompanied by three sounds verse 16 a cry of command or your version might say a shout of command or a loud command with the voice of an archangel, and then with the sound of the trumpet of God. So this will be loud. This will be unmistakably clear. You you are not going to miss this. 2 Thessalonians uh, 1 verse 7 says, Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. So you're not going to be wondering, is is this really it? Verse 16 assures us that you will not sleep through this. If you're dead, you won't sleep through this, okay? It it, It will be unmistakable. Uh, think about Lazarus. When, when Jesus goes to the tomb, he's been dead for a few days, and he calls into the tomb, Lazarus, come out. That's like a tiny picture when Lazarus comes out of the tomb of what's in view here on a very large scale, that, that Jesus is going to call out of the grave those who belong to him. Now, the first ones to meet Jesus, the returning king, will be the dead in Christ. Now, in Christ is very important here and in other places in the New Testament where we see uh, th- th- this, this terminology. This is the key distinction among all those who have experienced physical death. Were they in Christ or not? And that's the key question for us today, is are you in Christ or not? Am I in Christ or not? And, and the Bible offers zero hope in light of God's coming judgment of the world and Jesus' second coming if you are not in Christ. But it offers us tons of hope if we're in him. So if we've turned away from our sin, the the, the word in the Bible often used is repent, turning away from our sin and turning to Christ, trusting in him, his life, his death, his resurrection. Trusting in him as the only one who can make us right with God, forgive our sins, and give us life, and give us hope. These are the ones who will rise first, the dead who are in Christ. And then verse 17 says, what will happen to those who are in Christ who are still alive at that time. It says they will be caught up together with them, the dead in Christ, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now, this, this, uh, this phrase caught up is, is, is the idea of being snatched up. It, 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 your version might say snatched up. The idea is this quick, sudden action. And, and you may have heard about the idea of the rapture. This is where that idea comes from. You're not going to see the word rapture in your Bible. It, it comes from the Latin, raptus. So Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians in Greek. That was translated into Latin. And then from Latin, we bring it into English. And, and sometimes you might hear that word rapture. So the idea of the, the rapture or being caught up is taken by some people to mean that Jesus takes his people away from the earth, takes them away to heaven, like this. the, the old song, I'll Fly Away. You guys have heard that, I'll, I'll fly away. That, that's the idea, that it's quite literally teaching that, that we will be caught up, snatched up, and taken away to heaven and when we meet him in the air. Others would say, no, that's not the idea here. The idea is that we would meet Jesus in the air, not to fly away, but to escort him to earth as he takes up his rightful place as king and the, the one who judges the living and the dead. Now, that might be a, a completely new idea for some of us in the room that, that we would meet Jesus in the air not to fly away but, but to, to, to escort him back to earth so here's a, a brief explanation this is by dr. David Chapman uh, he, he wrote a, a short little article that just kind of boils it down to to its simplest form and, and this is, so this would be the, the non-rapture view he says it seems more likely that Paul expects Jesus descent to continue from the heavens to the earth the Greek word for meet so like meeting him in the air. Uh, he, he brings out that it, this word only appears two other times in the New Testament. The first time that we see that is in Matthew 25, the parable of the virgins who go out to meet the bridegroom and then escort the bridegroom to the place where the, the wedding feast is going to take place. And then in Acts 28, the Roman believers, they are, are, are said to travel outside the city to welcome Paul and then escort him back as an honored guest into the city of Rome. So that, that, he's arguing that that's the idea of meat here, and it's used throughout, uh, even extra-biblical sources will confirm that, that usage. And so that's, that's the idea here, he would say, that Paul, he says, expects the dead in Christ to be raised, followed by the lifting up of the living believers to welcome Jesus in the air before Jesus descends to earth with his people in order to judge the world and establish fully his kingdom on earth. So that gives you an idea of the, the, the rapture view and then the non-rapture view, and that's as far as we'll go with, with the rapture specifically this morning. But just so you can see, there are some who believe there is a rapture, there's some who believe there's not a rapture, and they both have biblical reasons for believing what they do. So this would fall in the category of debatable matters, that what is, what is not debatable is that Jesus is gonna return, the believer, that believers would be raised to be with him and, and to have eternal life, and that's what's made clear here in another passages. The, 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 the part about the rapture debate is something that we, we dialogue about, we discuss. Um, the, the bigger context for that, for the rapture in the second coming, is the issue of the millennium. The millennium. Now, that's a, a big, kind of scary-sounding word. It's, it just refers to a 1,000-year period. That is taught about in Revelation chapter 20, that says that, that that believers will reign with Christ on earth for a thousand years. That's where the the thousand, that's where the millennium idea comes from, and and that's that's what it it refers to. And we really can't understand the rapture idea without understanding. The millennium. Okay. So again, we do not have enough time to dive into all this. Uh, books are written about this, many, many books are written about this. We're going to cover it in two minutes. Okay. So this is just, this is just a very high level overview that hopefully we'll we'll put some pieces together in your mind and we'll set you up if if you want to further understand these things or further study these on your own. Okay. So depending on how you count, there are four main views of when Christ's second coming happens in the biblical storyline and whether or not there is this thousand-year reign or there were millennium on earth. Now, we, we have these handy little diagrams that we'll put on the screens. These are from the ESV study Bible. If you have that or another study Bible, very likely they will have something like this uh, in your Bible to, to very simply explain things. Uh, there are much more complicated uh, charts if you Google <laughs> these kinds of things that you can see. Uh, We'll look at four very very shortly. So premillennialism, or we'll just call it pre-mill for short. That's what mill means, millennium. So pre-mill means Jesus returns pre or before the millennium, otherwise known as the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. Okay, so that's why it's called pre-millennialism. Now First Thessalonians four that we're looking at now, Jesus' return, that happens in the, in classical premillennialism before the millennium and after the tribulation. The tribulation is is this this period of time that that, uh, people will go through great difficulty, suffering, plagues, it's a a terrible time on earth called the tribulation. So in classical premillennialism, Jesus' return, 1 Thessalonians 4 happens before the millennium and after the tribulation, okay? So there's not really a rapture in this view. Believers are immediately caught up with Christ as he returns. They come to earth, and that ushers in the thousand-year reign of Christ. And then the chair in this diagram and the other ones that are, that are coming, uh, that signifies the final judgment, okay? Now, that's the first one. Second one, pre-tribulational premillennialism. okay? That'll be a fun one to, to use with a friend uh, this week. If you, a lot of people, people will call this pre-trib and pre mill just for short. But it's a mouthful. Here's here's what that means. It's a variation on the last one, but this is the one of the four views where the rapture idea comes in. That Christ comes before the millennium. He raptures the church. He takes them away. He snatches them away. They fly away before the tribulation comes and then returns for the thousand year reign. Now the variation on this would be that the the um, the rapture happens after the tribulation, or the rapture ha- happens in the middle of the tribulation. So the mid-trib, post-trib. If you've ever heard those terms, that's where this comes into play. So there's different variations on this view. Okay, so those are the first two views: classical premillennialism, pre-trib, pre-mill. Okay, and then the next two are much simpler. Okay, next two are much simpler: post-millennialism, post-mill. This is Jesus returns post or after the millennium. There, there's no rapture. It doesn't apply here. Everything happens at once. First Thessalonians 4, the return of Christ, the final judgment. It all happens right there together at the end of the thousand year reign or, or the millennium. Okay, that's post-millennialism. And then finally, amillennialism, amil, so ah meaning no or not. Okay, there, there is no millennium. Uh, this one's also very simple. The, the, that's the big difference is there is no millennium in this view. Well, how can they say that if it's in Revelation 20, plain as day? The argument would be that the millennium, the thousand years, is not literal. It's, it's a very figurative. It's figurative for a very long period of time. And Revelation itself has lots of symbols and lots of figurative language. Uh, so that's why they would say, well, there's no actual 1,000 years. It's a very long time. And there's no rapture. It doesn't apply um, there. So that's a very, very quick overview. Hopefully, maybe can put some things in, into place in your mind for some of the things you might have heard. Um, a, a few big picture things to keep in mind. Each of these four views has support in the Bible and support in church history. So, so these are not crazy, these aren't unfounded. They, there are biblical arguments for why people would believe one of these. Uh, so so if, if somebody teaches one of these views, somebody else that has a different view should not be throwing stones at at them, okay? Uh, Each view teaches the physical return of Christ and the resurrection of believers. That's what's critical. Each view holds that the judgment seat of Christ is the last event before the ultimate eternal state. So these are things that we should study, discuss together, uh, but they shouldn't divide us. They they should be good things to dig into God's word together and, 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 and to see what he has revealed and to stop where he hasn't revealed Um, but they shouldn't divide us. And and we should be cautious and humble when we're making conclusions on these things because a lot of really good minds who love Jesus have have come to different biblical conclusions. I had a seminary professor who who argued for hermeneutical humility. So he's saying as we're interpreting the Bible, we need humility. And his point was the Jews in Jesus' day, they thought they had everything figured out to the T. And then what did they do? They crucified the Messiah who was come to save the whole world. Right, So we, we just need to be humble that if we think we have all this figured out, maybe there's, maybe there's something that we're missing, okay? Um, so let, let's be charitable in these things. It does not mean that they're unimportant. It doesn't mean we shouldn't study them. It does mean that we should honor those who are making a faithful biblical effort to, to interpret and if, if we disagree with them. It's not in the same category as Jesus rose from the dead or the Trinity or salvation by grace through faith. Those are what we would call first order doctrines closed-handed issues, this would be an example of a second-order doctrine, an open-handed issue that we might have a conclusion about, but that we wouldn't uh, argue about. What do we believe as a church? Here's our answer at New Life, okay? This is from our core beliefs. You can find this online or in the Journey 201 material. We believe Christ will return to establish a new heaven and a new earth, and there will be a judgment that results in eternal punishment for the unrighteous or eternal perfection for the righteous, meaning those who are made righteous in Christ. So at New Life, we don't take a specific view on the rapture or the millennium, at least not as a core belief, okay? That doesn't mean they're, they're unimportant, it just means that's, those aren't hills we're gonna die on, is one of these specific kinds of views. I, I wanna follow the, the great British preacher, John Stott, when, when he says there are two extremes that we wanna avoid in all these things. We wanna avoid the extreme of being speculators on one hand, or being scoffers on the other hand, speculators and scoffers. So first, speculators. Some, some people are way too caught up in speculating about timelines and forecasting dates of Jesus' return, or de- one of the big ones is determining the identity of the Antichrist. Okay, you, you guys have probably seen a lot of those. There have been a lot of nominations for that. Uh, the, the Pope, many many different popes have been nominated as the Antichrist, Muhammad, who founded Islam, has been called many for many centuries the Antichrist. Uh, political leaders like Roman Emperors, Nero Caesar, uh, Napoleon, Hitler, they've all been referred to as the Antichrist. Uh, one of the ones closer to our day, I remember as a kid that uh, Gorbachev was, was named, he's the Antichrist. And, and this poor guy, a leader in the USSR, uh, modern-day Russia, uh, he had this unfortunate birthmark on his forehead that was referred to as the mark of the beast right? And so the, there were books and articles and uh, and, and arguments about, uh, you know, that he's the Antichrist. The American president, nearly every president since FDR has had a case made against him that he is the Antichrist for one reason or another. So, the, so there has been no shortage of, of speculators on this or when the end times will come. Uh, I was talking with, with Mike Van Gilder after the first service, and uh, he reminded me of Uh, a book that was entitled 88 Reasons Jesus is Coming Back in 1988. (laughs) Spoiler alert, that didn't happen. But, and and how he got another book published, I don't know. But no kidding, no joke, he he found one flaw in what he had predicted, and then his next book was 89 Reasons (laughs) Jesus is Coming Back in 1989. You guys remember this? Some of y'all remember this. There, there was a, a newspaper from 2010 that I saved, um, or 12 years ago, I guess. Um, it says, The End of the World on May 21st, 2011. Where does all? Where, where do they base this argument? This was a full-page ad taken out in newspapers, I don't know how many cities, but across the country. Uh, it, it was put out by a, a group in California, and I was in Atlanta at the time, so I was like, okay. <laughs> and so 2 Peter uh, 3.8, they say, reminds us that one day is as a 1,000 years, is what God says. Now, that's that's true. That verse does say that. Here's the problem. The rest of it's the problem. They said, Therefore, when God told Noah there were seven days to escape worldwide destruction, he was also telling the world there would be exactly 7,000 years, in parentheses, one day is as 1,000 years, to escape the wrath of God that would come when he destroys the world on Judgment Day. 7,000 years after 9, uh, 4990 B.C., the year of the flood, is the year 2011 A.D. in our calendar. So here was the math that they did. 4990 B.C. plus 2011 minus one. They, they wanted to account for that. One year must be subtracted in going from an Old Testament B.C. calendar to a date that the New Testament A.D. calendar, because our calendar does not have the year zero. I don't know if that's accurate or, or not. Uh, their prediction was not accurate, by the way. Um, <laughs> because the year 2011 AD is exactly 7,000 years after 4990 BC when the flood began, the Bible has given us absolute proof that the year 2011 is the end of the world. Amazingly, May 21st, 2011 is the 17th day of the second month of the biblical calendar of our day. Remember, the flood waters also began on the 17th day of the second month in the year 40, 4990 BC. The Holy Bible gives us several additional astounding proofs that May twenty first, twenty eleven, is a very is very accurate as the time for the day of judgment. Now we could spend the rest of our time talking about all the problems with their logic and their thinking and their biblical interpretation. Uh, the sad thing is that they took out they, they spent a lot of money putting out these ads in, in in newspapers across the country. This this is the kind of foolish speculation that is out of place, and it's unfortunately I believe led many people astray, or led many people to say. All the stuff in the Bible, that's just just a bunch of stories and a bunch of predictions, and it's just a bunch of crazy stuff, and it's had a really negative impact. And of course, you have plenty of responses to this kind of thing. Uh, Some of you may have seen years ago, Lark News is a forerunner to the Babylon Bee, okay? A Christian satire site. They poked fun at this kind of thing. They had an article entitled, Rapture Takes Two. Here's what it says. The rapture occurred last Tuesday at 9.43 a.m. Greenwich Mean Time and took both people on the planet whose theology was exactly correct. (laughs) Dan Wilson of Ottawa, Canada was snatched away while sleeping. His wife says he spent years refining his eschatological scheme. Just last week, he told me he had it all right, but I still disagreed with him on a minor point. I regret that now. (laughs) Rejna Tanawala of New Delhi, India, also experienced the rapture, says friends. say friends. She knew exactly what the books of Revelation and Daniel meant. They said, sadly, none of us listened to her. In a surprise, Tim LaHaye says he was, quote, slightly wrong on the subject of the beast, end quote, and was left behind. <laughs> Other prophecy experts say they, too, botched minor points in their end times charts. Now, I'm all for satire. I, I think there's a place for that. We need to offer correctives to, to those who are obsessed with details and timelines and those kinds of things. But on the other side of being, of being speculators, what we can't do is to be scoffers. We, we can't just make fun of anything that has to do with the end times, anything that has to do with prophecy. It's, it is all over the Bible and it's all over the New Testament. What we, what we need to do is not to be scoffers, but to be very careful in our interpretation, and and to focus on what is revealed and not what isn't revealed and put the emphasis where God's word puts the emphasis. So prophecy and end times teaching in the Bible is mostly meant to give us hope. It gives us assurance that God knows what is going on and what is going to happen. And that whenever we face persecution and suffering, even if it's the legit end of the world kind of stuff, that this teaching should comfort us and encourage us and help us get through it without losing our faith in him now that's what Paul says here in 1st Thessalonians that's that's his point the bottom line of verse 17 is that final phrase it says and so we will be with the lord forever that that is the assurance he wants to give them the, that the goal of believers being re- resurrected and the main reason we can we can grieve differently with hope is that we will be with the lord forever so so Paul did not want them to know every minor detail or or he would have he would have said more, but, but he also doesn't want them to be uninformed. He reassures them Jesus will certainly return, and he will take us to be, to be with him, himself and to be with him forever. So Paul finishes this section of the letter with, with one main application, and it's a great application for us, just like it was the believers in Thessalonica. Verse 18, he says, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Paul doesn't say, go figure out all the stuff I didn't tell you. His main application isn't to draw a detailed chart and connect all the dots in Daniel and Revelation. Now, now those aren't necessarily a bad thing. But what is his main point? His main point is we are supposed to encourage. That word could also be translated comfort. We're supposed to encourage and comfort one another with these words. What words? The words that Paul has just written about, the, the regard the death of believers in the second coming and and what will happen. So the point is not to satisfy all of our curiosities. It's it's to comfort us. Eschatology is for encouragement. It's for hope. That's why we we have emphasized hope throughout this study of 1 Thessalonians because it's all over this book. And, And many of us are curious. I'm in that boat too. I'm curious about a lot of stuff. And there's a measure of that that's good and healthy, but we have to keep the focus where God's Word keeps the focus. And Paul wrote to these believers so that they would encourage each other and comfort each other and help them maintain their faith when it began to be weak. So this passage, it began with ignorance, with grief, with hopelessness. And where does it end? It ends with comfort. It ends with encouragement. It ends with, with hope. So let, let's listen to Paul's words in this passage, these six verses, one more time. With that as the main emphasis in our minds. This is what he says to the Thessalonian believers and and by extension to us. But we don't want y'all to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that y'all may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to y'all by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself How should we grieve? Well, we grieve differently. We grieve with hope. Why? Because of what we believe. Number two, what should we believe? That Jesus is coming back and we will be raised to be with him forever if we are in Christ. What should we do? The third question, what should we do within time's teaching? We're to comfort and encourage one another with these truths about Jesus coming and about our own resurrection. So take Comfort. Be encouraged. If you are in Christ, you will not miss this. If your loved ones are in Christ, they will not miss any of this either. And take every opportunity in the body of Christ now to comfort one another, to encourage one another with these words. As we take the Lord's Supper in in a couple minutes, let's keep these things in mind that this passage reminds us of what we're declaring: that Christ has died, Christ has risen. And Christ will come again. And when he comes, he will raise us up to be with him forever. The full redemption of our bodies and the final redemption. I, I read something this week about this passage that says that the death of Christ purchased our redemption. That is past tense, that's done. The resurrection of Christ proves our redemption. Again, past tense, done. I think we could add to that that the return of Christ will complete our Our redemption. That we wait for a hopeful, with a hopeful expectation, and we wait in faith in what God has promised. And we declare that faith in unity together as we take communion together. So Chris is going to come and lead us in that. I'll pray for us, and then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words in 1 Thessalonians. We thank you for the believers who um, who asked these questions, and we thank you for uh, giving us the, the hope and the reassurance of your word that, that just as you have promised that Christ is coming back and that we have a hope in an eternal future that is as sure as Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And we thank you for that, and we ask you for, for each one of us here uh, that you would meet us in the place where we need, if, if it's to be in Christ, if it's to be encouraged about that we already are in Christ and what you have promised We ask that you would encourage our hearts and strengthen our faith as we celebrate this together this morning.